sorry I don't love you A fresh I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Becky Kovach. As promised, we are continuing our Harry Potter discussion with the Chamber of Secrets. Becky, I know it has taken us a little longer than we had initially planned to get to book two here, but, you know, I finished it pretty early and then I totally forgot to put notes in, so we're just going to wing this one, and I think because we both love Harry Potter so much, it'll be totally fine. Yeah, I I think we'll we'll be able to handle it. Yeah, so I sort of just want to start with the beginning of the book because Harry has returned to Privet Drive, which is his least favorite place in the world, probably. And, you know, in the first book, they went through some things, but Privet Drive still sucks. <laughs> yeah, and you'd think that, like, after living through an entire year at school and, like, Voldemort trying to kill you, Again, he'd be able to get some kind of relief, but going back to Privet Drive actually makes things 10 times worse for him, Um, especially because I believe in the second book, they like lock away his trunk and yeah, like his broomstick and they put a padlock on Hedwig's cage, which makes zero sense in terms of like caring for an animal. But (laughs) uh, they do all of these things to try and like ensure that Harry won't be able to do magic and like won't use what he's learned against them and it just makes his life that much more miserable right and obviously it's because they are terrified of what he could possibly do and they kind of just suck as people in general which we learn in the first book and that theme continues here but harry going back to privet drive also gives us one of the funniest moments in the book as well when he makes his great escape (laughs) and you know the weasleys are quite the group of people between you know the parents and all the kids but you have George and Fred specifically who are the most ridiculous characters in these books 99% of the time probably and they're just like oh you know let's just go get Harry in a flying vehicle (laughs) and it makes total sense to them yeah of course because who doesn't fly their Ford Anglia to go pick up their imprisoned friend Um, But Fred and George have always been, like, two of my favorite characters in these books, and I wish that we had seen more of them throughout the series. Right. I feel like towards the end, we do start to see a little bit more of them, um, just in terms of, like, Dumbledore's army and all that stuff. But just, like, in these first few books, they're just kind of, like, fleeting moments of their ridiculousness, and I wish we'd gotten more of that. Absolutely. The Weasley that we actually see even more in this book ends up being Ginny too and Mm -hmm. while she's not necessarily at the forefront of the story she's kind of always lurking in the background and I don't mean that in a creepy way but it's just one of those (laughs) things where it's like the story's kind of about her at one point but it's kind of not really about her she's sort of just the vehicle to get to the end of the story, but it still sets up her character in a way that's really interesting compared to how we meet all of the other Weasleys and see how they interact with other people at Hogwarts. Yeah, and I mean, the first, it's funny because the first like real mention of Ginny in this book, I think, is when Harry and Ron and Fred and George arrive at the Burrow, which is, uh, um, as you know, the Weasleys' house, but 
they arrive at the burrow and Ginny like comes down the stairs for breakfast in the morning. And the minute she sees Harry, she just like flees. Um, which is, it's funny that that's the first real mention of her in this book, because we kind of see that as a theme throughout the series for the next few, where she kind of has trouble talking to Harry and she has trouble being in a room with him without like turning red and getting embarrassed. And because of the nature of the Weasleys, her turning red, it's very obvious, you know, because of their complexion. And, you know, it's funny because in the movies, I think they did a really nice job casting characters that look enough alike to where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, these are all they're all part of the same family. Yeah. And especially in the case of the Weasleys, that was so important because they're such a well-known family in like the wizarding world. Like people know, you know red hair they they're probably a weasley so that was definitely an important thing that they needed to get just right with the movies yeah i don't think there are even really too many other redheads in general in these stories if there are it's just characters in passing who don't really have any huge significance to the story but i just feel like it was very interesting to have Ginny sort of go through this traumatic event her first year but still have it be about Harry Potter instead of being about her because obviously Harry is the crux for this entire series you know it the series is named after him not after the Weasleys or anything like that so you know everything that happens in these books is going to have some sort of significance for him even if it's delivered through a different character yeah um but it's I mean it's I I obviously understand that, like, this is Harry Potter, like, that's the series, but there's so much more to these other characters that I wish would have been explored more. Like, I would have liked to see more of what was happening to Ginny as it was happening, and not just these, like, brief glimpses where she sees Harry with, like, the diary and she freaks out, or, you know, things along those lines where we kind of get hints at it, but we don't see the full story. I totally know what you mean. It's like they give you just enough to sort of start piecing together what's happening. But then you're like, oh, okay, that happened. And I I don't say that to have it be a knock on the book because these stories are still really great. And I still really enjoyed reading through this one again because I was like, oh, yeah, that happened. And that happened. And this other thing. And there were so many great moments in the book that you're kind of a little more forgiving of something like that. Yeah, with this book especially, the Death Day party is one of my favorite scenes. And, you know, having seen the movies as many times as I have, and it not being in the movies, I kind of forgot about it. And then rereading the book and getting to that whole chapter, I was like, oh, yeah, this totally happened. And I love this entire part. So it's like stuff like that that definitely makes up for what might be lacking in other aspects. I think that sort of leads into the pacing of the story, too, because this is something we talked about with the first book and how we both didn't really realize that we had spent so much time at Privet Drive. It's like the first third of the book is pretty much leading up to Harry even getting the invite to go to Hogwarts and everything like that. But in this one, you obviously have a completely different scenario because you know he's returning to Hogwarts. And obviously with the escape and everything it's like okay you know they get there they get harry they get all of his stuff out and they make a huge commotion while doing so because you know it's fred and george of course they will and 
then you finally get to the point where they're at the Weasley's house and they go back to school not too terribly long after that. So it really feels like that introduction to the new school year is a lot shorter than it was in the first book. And I think that helps with this story a little too, because you do get to dive deeper into sort of the mystery aspect of it. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons for that could be that with the first book, there kind of had to be that little setup for him going to Hogwarts and a little bit more backstory. Whereas with this, like you said, he knows like the read as the reader, you know, he's going back to Hogwarts. So she doesn't have to spend as much time building up to that moment. Um, And like you said, it does lend more time to the actual mystery and what happens while he's at school. So it feels less rushed in that respect. What do you think of the comedy aspects in this book? Because we obviously have that with Harry's escape. And then we have it again, not too long after when Harry and Ron are sort of kept out of, you know, the platform, and they have to take the car again. So obviously, the car is literally a vehicle, but it's also a vehicle to deliver plenty of comedic moments. And then you just sort of have these little moments throughout the book that sort of just make you chuckle as you're reading along. And I think that really helps because, you know, these books are geared towards children. So you can't have it be like doom and gloom all the time necessarily. So I think they do a good job with sort of having that come across a little more in this book now that we have a feel for all of these characters or most of the characters anyway. Yeah, and I think, like you said, you kind of need that comedy to break things up. These books are geared towards a younger audience. So while it is very much about, you know, Harry and what's happening with Voldemort and, like, students are getting attacked, there needs to be those moments to kind of ease the tension a little bit so that it's not all super dark. And, um, I mean, it, it gets that way as the series goes on. It does get a lot darker. But in the meantime, like, Harry's only 12, It's so easy to forget that, too. You're like, oh, wait, they spend a lot more time at Hogwarts than, you know, we did in high school or something like that. And there's sort of this fairly large age gap within Hogwarts, too. You know, you have Percy, who is clearly much more of an adult than literally everyone other than Hermione, maybe, (laughs) (laughs) as far as the, you know, students go. So it's one of those things where I think... J.K. Rowling did a nice job of being like, okay, you know, there's the professors and the parents, you know, those are the elder figures, so to speak. But then you have someone like Percy and you have someone like Hermione, who, even though she isn't necessarily older than the other characters, if she tells you to do something, you're probably going to know that it's something you should do just because she is so much smarter than everyone else because she reads all the books, literally all. All of the books, I'm pretty sure. And it's just sort of this tone that she has where you're like, oh, you know, she's probably someone we should listen to. But then you have, you know, Fred and George and you're like, eh, no, we don't need to take them so seriously. Yeah. With Hermione, it's like even if she's telling you to brew a really dangerous potion in the middle of a girl's bathroom, you're going to do it. Yes, exactly. Fred and George suggested it, you would (laughs) probably have some doubts. But yeah, it, I mean, it's a it's a, an interesting point to bring up. There is such an age gap at Hogwarts because you literally have kids from the age of 12 to 17 all, you know, living under one roof and going to school in the same, like, classrooms and stuff. And 
Um, yeah, their classes are separated by what year they are, but when it comes down to it, like they're all like they all have the same teachers and are studying the same subjects. And it's such like a weird idea compared to like what we have where, you know, high school is probably like 14 to 18. And even that's kind of a lot when you think about the maturity level of like a 14 year old versus an 18 year old. Right. Hmm. I never really I never really considered any of that. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about because you know, they're starting out so young. It's almost like that's those schools where sometimes part of junior high is included with the high school. I don't know if you have any of those where you are, but every once in a while, we'll have schools out here that are like eighth grade through the end of high school. So you sort of get an even bigger gap there. And it's sort of just, you know, strange to think about. You're like, why would they put eighth graders in the same place you know it just seems so odd when you look back and think about that but I think it also helps the younger students maybe mature a little better too because you know Hogwarts isn't like a typical high school obviously they have slightly different responsibilities you know you have to not blow things up and you know not poison yourself and or other people by making dangerous potions in the girls' bathroom. And, (laughs) you know, there are so many overwhelming factors of how things can go wrong at Hogwarts in comparison to just like normal high school. Although in this day and age, who knows, everything is dangerous when you go outside. So yeah, it's one of those things where because of their extraordinary abilities, it's like, okay, you know what? Maybe we can put these groups of kids together in a different way and they'll all sort of learn from each other better. And you see that more, I think, in sort of like the dorm setting where they have the common rooms and then, you know, the boys go off and the girls go off to their sections. But you still have these areas where it's like everyone from that house can interact. Yeah. And I mean, it does work in these cases. Like you said, in the common room, you see students of all ages just kind of working and interacting. And, you know, the older students are helping the younger ones with their homework or Hermione's helping everyone with their homework. And it's a very, it's a very chill environment, at least from like what you see at the Gryffindor common room, since you don't really see the other ones. Yeah, I totally agree. I think with this book, too, because you have not only Ginny as sort of the new face in the story, but you have Professor Lockhart who is another character we definitely need to talk about because oh yeah what a guy (laughs) what a guy relief (laughs) yeah and you know he is tasked with teaching the defense of the dark arts i believe that is the correct order for all of those words yeah and it's a job that no one seems to last very long in so you have this job where the professors are constantly rotating in and out and you know professor lockhart is more let's see how i should put this he's more concerned with his fame than anything else and he sort of tries to get harry to think the same way like oh you're so famous and he sort of just keeps complimenting him as if you know he's going to be the next big thing and it's not something that Harry really wants or cares for. So to have, you know, those two interacting, like you said, there's a ton of comedic relief there. And you even see Lockhart chicken out by the end of the book. You're like, okay, no, you are going to see this through because 
what are you doing here if you can't do this thing for them? <laughs> yeah. And I think one of the funniest things about Lockhart is the way that like he tries to get Harry to embrace his fame while simultaneously like putting Harry down, like making it right. seem like he himself is more famous than Harry and Harry should be learning from him. When in reality, like as famous as Lockhart is, Harry is much more well known. Yeah, just because Harry Potter isn't going out and doing book signings and having his picture taken with every single person he meets on the street, it's one of those things where people sort of just gawk quietly at Harry. And, you know, even Ginny is infatuated with him right away. You know, everyone knows who he is. And it's just because of how the wizarding world is you know it's like okay if Voldemort tries to kill someone and fails everyone's going to know about it and clearly everyone knew about it before Harry did so I think that's part of the reason why he doesn't care much for the fame I I think he's still hurt about the fact that everyone else knew and he had absolutely no idea he didn't know who his parents were and you know we see him learn a little more about them in the first book and we get tidbits here and there but I feel like in this book it doesn't really focus on that too much in the first book you know you had everything with the mirror going on and that stuff and Dumbledore was sort of kind of letting him figure out things on his own but then here you know you have this diary And you have Tom Riddle, and it's just such a different mystery that I think it would have felt a little forced if J.K. Rowling tried to put too much more of Harry learning about his parents' past. And I do like that she paced that out very well, I think, throughout all of these books. You know, you don't want to give Harry all of the information in the first two, even three books, because then what are you going to do for the next four? Yeah. And she kind of, she, has she lets Harry learn what he needs to learn as he goes like he didn't need all of the information at once but as he dives deeper and deeper into um you know Voldemort's return and and how to stop him and stuff like that like he needs to start having that background information absolutely and what were your thoughts on the chamber of secrets in general because i thought it was not quite as interesting as the Sorcerer's Stone as far as figuring out how to get to it. You know, in Sorcerer's Stone, you had all of the puzzles, basically. And I think, you know, that was something that really allowed Hermione to shine, which was great. But in this, you know, she's not even with them. You have, it's Harry, Ron, and Lockhart, I believe. And Lockhart is useless. (laughs) Yeah, Lockhart's useless and because he tries to, like, modify their memories it ends up that Ron and Lockhart don't even make it to the Chamber of Secrets they get stuck behind a pile of rubble in the tunnels on their way there so Harry ends up going through it alone so I I mean in terms of yeah I I mean I agree with you I think that the Sorcerer's Stone was more interesting as like a mystery and a challenge for them because it required more and it required help from Ron and from Hermione because you know Ron does the the giant chess game he's the one who plays that game and helps them through that part um so it does help the other characters shine a little bit more but the thing about the chamber of secrets is that it's such a big setup for so much that comes after um because 
like we have Harry with being a parcel tongue. This is the first time that we realize, you know, that he can talk to snakes, that it's not a very common gift for a wizard. Again, something he didn't know, too. Yeah. Um, So we start to see a little bit more of the connections between him and Voldemort. And then, you know, we don't know what the diary is at the time that we're reading the second book. But this is our first glimpse of the Horcruxes. And it it starts to set up that whole storyline that comes later and that becomes so important to the series. And I think we do get enough mystery elsewhere to where it isn't a big deal that, you know, Hermione isn't involved in going down there. You know, she's the one who, like you said, gets the potion and gets all of that stuff ready. And, you know, yeah. she she is the inquisitive one. And we also have, you know, all of the people being petrified, including Hermione in this mm-hmm. book, which is huge because then you you don't have Hermione for a good chunk of it too, because, you know, she's kind of useless for that, for that time period. Yeah. But at the same time, even when she's petrified, she's still the one who's giving them all of the answers. True. She does have a paper stuck in her hand. (laughs) Yeah. She's the one who figures out what the monster in the chamber of secrets is and how it's been getting around the castle, which Ron and, and Harry would never have figured out on their own. They probably would have had no idea what a basilisk was. Um, But when they go to visit her in the hospital, they realize that she's got this piece of paper clenched in her fist. um, And that's how they learn what it is and and consequently how the reader learns what the monster is. um, And everything kind of snowballs from there. So even when she's petrified in the hospital, lying in a bed, supposedly useless, she's still the one giving them all the answers. That is very true. She is just physically useless you know she's stuck she's bedridden basically for a while and it's her brain that sort of just always comes through for them whether or not she's actually there which is great to see it's like okay they did she did a nice job with not making Hermione totally useless I think that would have been a waste of the character if it was just like, oh, yeah, Hermione's going to be over here petrified for, you know, however many days. And, yeah, you know, she just would sort of drop off the radar until she was better. But I'm glad they did not necessarily do that with the character. And, you know, the diary is another big aspect of the book because you have Ginny writing in it and it writes back, basically. Yeah. And then you have Harry with it, and he figures out that it does the same thing. And he wants it to give him answers that he actually, you know, in a sense, needs. Because there's so much he doesn't know. Yeah, but then what ends up happening is the book is misleading, and it shows him what it thinks will get him to trust it. Right. So it shows Harry wants to know who opened the Chamber of Secrets 50 years ago, and the book shows him, or Tom Riddle's, like the part of Tom Riddle's soul that's in the book shows Harry uh, Riddle confronting Hagrid about Aragog, which is the giant spider, um, the Acromantula, uh, and making Harry think that Hagrid is the one who was responsible for it all those years before. Even though he thinks that, though, he doesn't think Hagrid would have done it on purpose, so to speak. No. But I think they use Hagrid in a great way 
in this book too because you know Hagrid has his own little secrets that he's been keeping and we know that he was expelled from Hogwarts already. It's like, okay, we know that, but we don't know why. So they chip away at that throughout this book. And then by the end, you're like, you know, this makes sense. And obviously Dumbledore kept Hagrid on because he knew what had really happened, but he was probably pressured into expelling Hagrid. And that was his way of being like, you know, hey, I know you didn't do this, so we're going to make you the head gamekeeper. Yeah, well, uh, Dumbledore wasn't actually headmaster at the time that the chamber was originally opened. That was true. He was just a professor. Yeah, I think it was Armando Dippet, but ha- Dumbledore is the one who's responsible for convincing the headmaster to keep Hagrid on as gamekeeper. Right. And then I think. Dumbledore probably took over not too terribly long after. He seems to have been headmaster for a while by the time we actually, yeah. you know, meet him in book one. But I am not sure on the entire timeline of Dumbledore's history. So yeah, I don't, I don't. Yeah, I don't know the exact like dates or how. Like, yeah, I don't. I don't know quite how that worked. But it probably wasn't too long after. There are a lot of things to remember when it comes to the Harry Potter books. Especially now that she keeps adding to it with, you know, the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them and everything. It's like, wait, okay, hold on. (laughs) Gotta plot this out. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it all, it's cool because it all does tie together, but it does end up being a lot if you're trying to keep it all straight. Exactly. We also find out who Tom Riddle really is, and it's just Voldemort again, and he failed again. So it's one of those things where you're like, okay. You know, Voldemort has clearly thought this out a lot. And clearly J.K. Rowling has too. I don't know how she came up with any of this, to be honest with you. I'm very glad she did. But wow, that's impressive. Yeah, getting to the later books and, you know, finally learning about the Horcruxes and realizing what Tom Riddle's diary was. It just like, it kind of blew my mind how far out and how well planned she put like she made all of this like everything had a purpose it really did and you see that as we even go through this book it's like okay you know she's giving you these little tidbits of information and you don't even necessarily know they mean something until they mean something which I really like as I'm going through and rereading these books because you know I haven't reread them before now And I feel like there was probably a lot I missed out on just because of when I would have read these books. And now I'm like, oh, okay, I'm catching on to these things a lot faster than I probably did before. And even catching more little details here and there just because, you know, it's one of those things where, yes, it's a book geared towards kids, but adults can read it too and get something out of it. So it's really nice to have that flexibility with these books it's like yeah are they really for kids though are they really i think they're more for you and me <laughs> now. yeah i mean they get very dark at the end like people are dying left and right you see that in the movies too you're like wait this is based off a kid's book <laughs> yeah um and with warner brothers especially like that the, the harry potter like the warner brothers logo at the beginning of the harry potter movies like it slowly gets darker and darker right and more like worn out and broken down and it all kind of reflects um the 
overall attitudes within the movies. I like how she also knows when to break up the action mystery scenes, so to speak, because, you know, we have Headless Nick's party in this book, too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, you know, obviously this is going to serve some sort of purpose, but it's kind of a lull for a little bit. They're like, oh, okay, you know, we have this party to go to. We told Headless Nick we would go. And it's sort of a very realistic depiction of having to go somewhere, but not really wanting to, (laughs) which I really enjoyed. I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like me when I have to do things and I don't really want to. (laughs) Yeah, and it's more of that comic relief. Um, You have this table laid out of putrid rotting food and you have the ghosts kind of walking through it with their mouths open and i think ron asks one of them you know can you taste it and the ghost is like no but they try anyway yeah <laughs> and it's like is this something that like was i it, were i a ghost is this something that i might try that would be interesting to know yeah and meanwhile hermione's there like watching everything just like curious about all of it yeah she probably wants to ask 20 questions to every single person or ghost there yeah (laughs) very typical of Hermione yeah she's like they're commenting on how they've probably let the food rot to give it a stronger flavor and I'm like okay (laughs) but would you want to walk through it yeah I don't I'm starting to think maybe not (laughs) probably not so last time we also talked about our favorite moments, and I definitely want to do that again. I think we are in agreement that his escape earlier on from Privet Drive is a pretty memorable moment, at least, if not a favorite moment. But are there any in particular that really stood out to you while you were reading the book? Yeah, I mean, his escape is definitely great. Um, the Death Day Party is one of my favorite scenes in any of the books. I, I don't know why that scene just has always stuck with me. And I was super disappointed when it didn't make it into the movies. Um, I think the scene where Harry breaks his arm playing Quidditch and Lockhart is like, I'll fix it in a jiff and ends up removing all of Harry's bones is another like iconic moment. I totally agree with you on that. And obviously Quidditch still plays an important role in this too. And I like that they made... Malfoy go up directly against Harry in this book too because it's like you could tell there was this rivalry building up in the first book but they didn't really have the means to have like an actual rivalry going because Draco wasn't allowed to join the Quidditch team and his dad goes out and buys them all the newer edition of the broom that Harry had from last year and it's sort of just this move that you would totally expect from a Malfoy at this point, even though we don't know, you know, too terribly much about the family. And we do get more of that. But I do like the Quidditch match in particular, where they're just going head to head and Harry just makes him look like a fool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And we do get our first like real introduction to, you know, Draco's dad in this book, when they run into him in the bookstore and Diagon Alley and he that's the moment when he slips the diary into Ginny's cauldron. Um, not that we know it at the time, but that's like our first real look at, you know, where Draco comes from and why Draco is the way that he is. And it just explains so much. Yeah. And you even see his dad get humiliated in this book too, which then humiliates Draco. And you're like, yes, 
a win for Harry Potter again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, literally all I want to do the entire time is punch Draco in the face. He's just so smug. (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of people like that just in, you know, like books and TV and movies. And I'm just like, I hate you so much, but I'm sure in real life you're a great person. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Depends these days. I was going to say, I think those are amongst my favorite parts of the book. I don't know if you have any others that you wanted to, to talk about. I wouldn't say this is a favorite moment for me, but it's a moment where you sort of just can't help but feel bad. And that's when Ginny sort of snaps out of everything and realizes what's happened. And she just feels so bad about it. And it's like in that moment, you feel exactly what she's feeling. And you're like, but why did this have to happen to Ginny? Like, why couldn't it have been some random person we didn't need to care about so much? Yeah, it does make it harder because it isn't just some random character. This is, you know, Ron's little sister. And in the past two books, we've grown attached to the Weasleys as a family because they are such genuinely good hearted people. Um, And they kind of, you know, they take Harry in and they make him a part of their family. So to see that happening to the only girl in this family like oh they take harry in without hesitation too you know it's like yeah they don't really know each other too terribly well still you know it's like obviously harry met the parents when he was trying to go learn how to go through the platform and everything in the first book and then you know it's just like oh yeah come on harry you can stay with us you know our children already helped you escape so why not (laughs) yeah i mean they literally zero hesitation The Weasleys just want to, you know, they see this boy who kind of grew up in really rough circumstances and without his parents and Mrs. Weasley accepts him right away. I mean, even after only having met him that one time on the platform, you know, in in his first year, she sends him a sweater for Christmas that she makes for her own children. And again, I think that goes back to how everyone knows his story better than he seems to. Because obviously, you know, while the Weasleys aren't, you know, the highest of the families in the wizarding world, like the Malfoys supposedly are, it's just one of those things where, you know, they definitely know what Harry has been through. So they're more sympathetic to him. And that actually reminds me of another one of my favorite moments from the book. And it was when they used the flu powder for the first time. Or Harry does anyway. He ends up in the wrong place. Yes. And, you know, he is just so confused by it. He is like, what just happened? Where am I? And then Hagrid comes and finds him. And he's like, Harry, what on earth are you doing over here? Yeah. Hagrid to the rescue. It's just small moments like that that I think really help make these books so entertaining. And even though we don't necessarily get all of the small moments adapted into the movies for the sake of you know not sitting there for four hours at least (laughs) i mean i would (laughs) you know i'm not saying i wouldn't but that's that's a long time to sit down and watch a movie yeah that's true that's like not a theater going experience i would not be able to sit in a theater for four hours straight and like not have to get up and like stretch or go get food or go to the bathroom or something (laughs) yeah there'd have to be an intermission But it would have to be a nicely timed one, too. You can't mess those up. True. But I think it also gives people a reason to appreciate the books and the movies for what they are, for for the different reasons, too. Because, you know, I don't need adaptations to be 
a one-to-one take on a book necessarily. And I do think, obviously, that the movies did a very nice job for the most part, from what I remember anyway. Again, I haven't really rewatched those either. I'll probably have to do that at some point, just for the sake of, you know, completing this entire experience of rereading the books and rewatching the movies. It'll happen, Becky, I promise. <laughs> Um, yeah, obviously, movies are never going to be 100% true to the books. Um, as it just they they can try and get as close as possible. But there's always going to be things that just don't, you know, further the plot line enough to include them. Um, but they I mean, these movies did a fairly decent job of adapting everything to the screen. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, as far as the book as a whole goes though this was a good move forward you know I didn't feel like it was too similar to the Sorcerer's Stone to end up being boring and while you know you have new characters at play here they don't spend too much time on them obviously we see quite a bit of Professor Lockhart just because he keeps popping up pretty much but it's not like we spend a ton of time on his background. It's like, okay, this is the famous dude. Here's why he's famous. And Hermione can, you know, get a little weak in the knees over him, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. we'll get over it. Yeah, I think that was the thing that bothered me most about Lockhart is the way that Hermione is so smitten with him. And like, obviously, you know, as a kid, you're gonna have, like, your crushes or whatever. But Hermione, she's 12. <laughs> yeah, I mean, little kid crush. But like, as smart as she is, she should have been able to see through the fact that he was a fraud. And I hate that, like, a lot of her interactions with him in this book boil down to her just being completely smitten. Yeah, you could even say, you know, she just sort of wants to believe in the good in people. So she was more inclined to believe everything that was in his books until she had a reason not to. And. Yeah. You know, it. the thing is, you know, Hermione might be 12 as well, but she does not act like she is. So it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, maybe she should have known better because Harry and Ron didn't even care for him. And, you know, you could argue that's because they don't like reading like Hermione does. But, you know, she obviously had a familiarity with him before he stepped foot in that classroom. Yeah. And just I feel like it just her interactions with him just kind of made her in the, into that typical like lovesick little girl and I just yeah. I want more from Hermione as a character just because she is the, the strong female lead in these books like I don't want to see her wasting her time like that yeah I get what you mean and the fact that they then have you know this horrible thing happening to Ginny on top of it in this book it's like okay you know maybe we can do a little better with those two and obviously J.K. Rowling handles that later on in the remainder of the books. But that is interesting to point out in this because it's like, okay, we have these female characters who sort of get put on the back burner for a little bit or a little longer than we would necessarily want them to. You know, even though Hermione is laid up in bed, she does manage to help. But then it's like, you know, they're kind of just left worrying about her. And she probably would have wanted them to focus their energy on something other than her, and they don't do that. So I do see where you're going with that. And it would have been interesting to see at least the thing with Professor Lockhart handled differently. 
Yeah. Is there anything else you can think of that we have not touched on yet? I'm sure there is. Someone's probably, you know, screaming at us right now. Like, <laughs> why do you talk about this? Well, just in the vein of new characters, the one that we have not discussed at all that I feel like we need to at least touch upon a little bit is Dobby. Yes. How could I forget? <laughs> Thank you for not letting me just end the podcast without discussing this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dobby is so important, not only in this book, but... You know, as the books go on, he may not be a major character, but his role in these stories is still so important. Um, there's so much that that happens because he helps make it so. So like in this case, uh, he first appears to Harry during the summer when Harry is on private drive. He's been stuck there for a couple weeks and, you know, all he wants is to get back to Hogwarts and he hasn't heard from any of his friends. And Dobby shows up to warn him against going back to school. Um, and you know, Dobby, we as readers don't necessarily know it at first, but Dobby is responsible for so many of the things that are happening to Harry throughout the book. Right. So Dobby shows up to warn him against going back to school. And when Harry doesn't listen, Dobby is the one that closes off the portal to platform nine and three quarters. And then when Harry gets back to school, Dobby is the one that enchants the bludger that breaks his arm. And, you know, he's the one that kind of leaves all of these clues for Harry um, and then the end of the book, Harry repays him by helping to free him from his masters who are the Malfoys. It's amazing how much of Dobby's backstory I forgot about because I was reading through this and I was like, oh, yeah, the Malfoys. <laughs> and it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that explains so much more later on that I kind of remember in pieces from the movies and everything. But, you know, because it's been so long again, it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, yeah, this happened and this happened. And oh, that makes so much more sense now that I know that that was why, you know, this thing happened later on. And that's exactly how I felt whenever Dobby appeared. And I think in a way, I was still surprised that it was the Malfoys that he served. I was like, oh, I totally forgot about that. So that was a little surprising. Yeah. But at the same time, the way he was treated by the Malfoys was not surprising whatsoever. Yeah, they treat him horribly. And, you know, if he does anything to disobey them, he has to to punish himself in some way. So he has to close his, you know, his ears in the closet door. He slams his fingers in a drawer. He irons his hands um, after one visit to Harry and that he was not supposed to do. So Harry seeing all of this and knowing how poorly the Malfoys treat him at the end of the book, he he finds a way to free him uh, without the Malfoys realizing what he's done until it's too late. And because of that, Dobby has this kind of unfailing gratitude and love for Harry that leads him to help Harry later on with things that Harry needs help with. Yeah, he doesn't necessarily need to stick around in this book too much to, for that sort of to come across as far as you know his loyalty to Harry and everything down the line goes because you can already tell that even though he's serving the Malfoys he wants to help Harry yeah and that probably isn't very common I would venture to say because it's just one of those things where okay you know even Dobby knows who Harry Potter is yeah I mean he kind of brings up the point when they first meet that as poorly as he's treated now, it was things were much worse for house elves prior to the downfall of Lord Voldemort. 
So he just already like barely knowing Harry has this appreciation for what Harry has done for his kind. Yeah, I really do like that moment where he's able to free him. It's just one of those mutual respect moments between Harry and Dobby that I think is something that just says a lot about each of the characters without making a big deal about it. Yeah. I mean, Dobby makes a big deal about it, but you can't blame <laughs> him for that. But just within the context of the book itself, it's just like, oh, Harry does this one last little thing. And it's not something where it's, you know, this big to do about it. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that most wizards would have done. So the fact that Harry does it, like you said, it says a lot about him as a character and the fact that he does have a good heart and he wants to help others. Um, and also it's just like this great little defiant moment where he gets the, the better of Lucius Malfoy to Malfoy's face. Right. Where it's kind of just like a suck it moment. <laughs> yeah. And he's not as in your face about it as Draco is when he's doing that to someone else. You know, Draco has to make this big stink about everything. And, it, you know, because like you said, he's so smug with himself. You just want to punch him in the face most of the time. Yeah. And the characters really feel that too. You know, how many times has Ron wanted to do something to Draco just because he didn't like how, you know, he was looking at them or something like that. And I think it's a little harder for Ron to control his anger than it is for Harry. But I think Harry is a little more strategic in how he goes about doing these things. And yeah. we, we see a little more of that as these books continue. And obviously Hermione is way better at strategy than both of them combined, but still oh, yeah. you sort of have these different levels of thinking strategically with just that group of characters. And it's like, Obviously, Hermione is the one you always want to listen to, probably. And then Harry's somewhere in between, and Ron is just like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> it's funny, though, because Hermione is the one who ends up losing her cool and actually punching him in the face. This is very, very true. So I could be just totally wrong on everything I just said. But as far as, you know, planning things out goes and not... Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, not, not when anyone is being impulsive. Although I would still say Ron is more impulsive than the rest of them oh absolutely and then we won't even get started on Fred and George because they just do <laughs> what they want all the time yeah I wish I could live life like Fred and George <laughs> wouldn't that be great be a lot more carefree yeah you know I, I wish we could all just use magic and make things better that would be a lot easier <laughs> yeah this, this is true you can make all the food you want up here too oh my goodness I'd be like 800 pounds. That would be a horrible idea. Never mind. <laughs> there are rules about not being able to make matter out of nothing. So you have to work around that. But generally speaking, yes. You could buy all the ingredients for all the different foods you like and just like flick a wand and there you go. Uh, no work. Baking made easy. But see, I, th I would think you like baking too much to actually forego the process. Yeah, but sometimes I don't like I want to, I just want the finished product. I don't want to go through the process of Give it. Give me my cookies. Yeah. Like sometimes you just really want a chocolate chip cookie and you don't want to have to wait for it. Very true. But yeah, for the most part you're right. I do like the process <laughs> too much to give it up entirely. I buy store-bought cookies, so you know, I can't really complain. <laughs> that's that's as close as you get to magic. Oh, here we go. Here's some cookies. <laughs> I made sugar cookies from scratch this weekend for Halloween to bring to the office tomorrow. I'm very excited. 
And then I sat for two hours and I decorated them. One day I will find you in person and just wait around until you make cookies so I can eat them. (laughs) One day. Deal. (laughs) Done. I'll just like creep in a corner. (laughs) You can take your time. If I thought that they would last, I would ship you some. But I don't know that they would ship well. I think I live a little too far for that now. Maybe if I had still been in Philly, that would have (laughs) worked. Yeah, then it would have been fine. I've, I've mailed cookies down to Philly before. I mean, it's only a state away. California, not so much. We got very off track here with cookies. Yes, we did. <laughs> Can you tell I'm hungry? Midnight snack. Perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Well, are there any final thoughts that you have on the book as a whole before we wrap up here and stop talking about cookies? <laughs> no, I, I think we, we touched upon pretty much all of the important points. It is, a, I mean, you don't know it at the time, but this book is super important to so much that comes later. Um, and rereading it and, and knowing where things are headed, um, I feel like we're able to see that a lot more. And it's really cool to see how much thought and effort she put into planning out these books and, and where things were going. So you can really see how the connection between Harry and Ginny started too in this book, even though it's one of those things where, like you said, she kind of shies away from him. The fact that he went through all the trouble to save her it sort of just plants that seed and it was something I don't think that ever really clicked in my head I think you know part of me always wanted Harry and Hermione to end up together for some reason I don't remember why but I just remember thinking that and then obviously not how things turn out (laughs) so you know going back and reading through these you know like, like we've both said you pick up on more things and I think That is something I didn't necessarily pick up on before because I was probably like 12 when I was reading the book too. So it's not necessarily something that would have clicked then. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I see. I see how we got from point A to point Z. (laughs) Yeah, first time around, I feel like I thought that Harry's like feelings for Ginny kind of came out of nowhere and were kind of unfounded and and had no real basis in, in what we'd seen in the book so far. But like you said, with this one, it does kind of plant that seed and, and set things up for what comes later with them. Even if it takes a while, too, which I like. It's yeah. not just like, oh, yeah, okay, these two are together, like, next year. Yeah, it takes a long while. Yeah. She definitely likes building up these characters before, you know, putting them in certain situations. And obviously, Harry has gone through a lot already just within these two books. So it'll be interesting to continue going through and rereading these because I'm really excited to see what else I missed just from reading them so long ago, which yeah. I don't know. I feel like that sounds weird to say, but because I haven't reread them before that I'm aware of, that I remember anyway, <laughs> I'm like, okay, yes. What else did I miss that I can catch catch on to now? Yeah. And I think I mentioned on the last episode that we did how the fact that I've seen the movies so many times, I started thinking that the way things happen in the movies was just like the way they happened in the books too. And that's not always necessarily the case. So going back and rereading the books for the first time in so long, it's kind of been refreshing because it's almost like reading them for the first time because there are certain nuances that are so different from the, their movie counterparts that it, it's like a whole new story. Or like there are just certain scenes and things that happened that didn't make it into the movies that I forgot about. So I was like, oh yeah, this this is a thing. Obviously, it's less time consuming to just go through 
all of the movies over and over again. But I feel like taking the time to do this is really going to make it better for me even when I go through and rewatch the movies as well. And like I said, I know I already did an episode on all of the movies as a whole, which probably not my best move. But, you know, we'll we'll see if I decide to go back and revisit that. I think I need to get through a few more topics before I revisit things on this podcast, though. <laughs> yeah. So many things to talk about, Becky. So little time. True. But we will be back with The Prisoner of Azkaban. And I am really looking forward to reading it. I have not started rereading it yet. Have you? Um, I reread the whole series this year okay you're you're ahead of me a little bit, a little <laughs> this bit. Is something that i started back in like january though um i asked for the whole series in paperback for christmas last year um because i wanted to reread it but the hardcovers tend to be a little too big to put in my backpack when i'm commuting to work yes they're so heavy <laughs> i got the the series last year and i've just been like slowly working my way through Nice. I think I have the audiobook for Prisoner of Azkaban, but knowing me, it was checked out to me like a week ago and I haven't even started it. So I might end up having to just read the book again because the library is like forever having the audiobooks on hold. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the whole paperback versus hardcover thing because mine's kind of half and half. I have the first three in paperback and then the rest are hardcovers and I don't know how or why that happened, but it did <laughs> So it kind of bothers me a little bit, but I'll get over it. It's fine. Mismatch set. <laughs> I, I think you just need to get the reverse so that you can have a set of hardcover <laughs> paperback. Becky, I do not have room for that. I do not. What is room? I don't know. I might not have a floor pretty soon in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs to walk in their own bedroom? Who needs that? No one. Just it's fill fine. it with books. <laughs> but yeah, we will be back with that one tangents aside here thank you so much becky for coming back on to talk about this book i am really going to enjoy going through the rest of them with you yeah i'm excited i am always down for harry potter yes we will hopefully be scheduling that one once you are back from your trip to london so have fun with that thanks well that wraps it up so to our listeners as always thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day